Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. So currently we are in our study in Paul's letter to Philippians. And last Sunday, we reached the point of Christ's humiliation. We want to stay here just for a moment. We want to stay here for today. I referenced Isaiah 53 last Sunday, but we did not have time in the service. And it's fitting for us as we approach communion today. And we remember the Lord, his body was broken, his blood was shed. And on the screen will come uh, just something, uh, an image that will help us to see this humiliation down at the low point into the exaltation of Christ. Christ was humiliated, but he was humiliated only one time. So if you visualize it this way, down and then up. Okay, he goes down, and this is out of the ESV Bible, the crossway, and we see at the point of the cross, the crucifixion. And that's where we go back to the Old Testament today, where we from today go 2,700 years back in time. And we see this description, this glorious chapter for telling of the coming of the Lord, the suffering servant. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes this. He says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Will you read that out loud with me? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they should have been prepared for the coming of this servant, of the Christ, of the anointed one. The gospel is not something that is new in the New Testament. The Old Testament foretold Jesus is coming. Messiah is coming. The New Testament says he's here. He lived the life that we cannot live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He ascended after he rose from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit came, the book of Acts, the church is born, and here we are 2,000 years later because disciples, followers of Christ, have been faithful to share the good news that there is a rescue for sinners. There is hope for sinners. And so we can go through every season of life and we can have the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. Why he writes from prison to believers and he's saying you can have joy that is unbreakable. But they missed it. The children of Israel missed it. It was unfolding in Genesis 3.15 right after we sinned that the Lord would make a way for sinners. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said the greatest blessing which God ever gave to man was the man, Christ Jesus. The greatest gift. So the incarnation was accomplished by God for our salvation, and it was all accomplished in God's way. And I wonder, is that okay with you, that God does things God's way? Or does that bother you, because you like to be in control? God does things God's way. Now the question is not, am I okay with it? 
unless I'm asking, how is that going for me? He will do his will his way. And we see this in the New Testament. We see this in the Old Testament. And I find great comfort in that because I'm delivered from attempting, perceiving, misbelieving that I'm actually in control of anything. I have responsibility, but I'm really not in control of much. God is, and I can trust him with that. So there's precise prophecies. They detailed the divine rescue mission and exactly what it would look like. So here we find the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ. And he's giving this beautiful, this pinnacle of prophecy of the coming of the suffering servant. 700 years later, there will be an angel come to a virgin named Mary. You're going to be with child. Ooh, how is this going to happen? Hey, Joseph, don't be afraid to take to you Mary as your wife. She's been faithful. This is a plan of God. Okay. Hey, shepherds on the hillside, there's been a a child born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They were announcing the birth, the angels announcing this plan is unfolding, and he was not born in the palace. He was born out there among the nobodies. Oh, this is God's plan. The A-list have a backseat. And God comes to the nobodies and he brings this, that here he sent forth his son, the king of kings, to be born in the lowliest of places so that every single person would have access to the God of all creation. Oh, if this doesn't lead us to wonder and worship, then what will? If this doesn't lead us to reorder our lives, then what will? My prayer as we study this passage today, that God will enable this message of love and grace and mercy to lead us to wonder, to worship, and to willing obedience, realizing this is the plan of God. My life is a small little plan, small little kingdom. His plan, his kingdom is without end. What am I living for? What are you living for? That's the question for us. So this morning as you see your notes there, and, and we just got these five Five aspects of the suffering servant. Behold the wonder of the suffering servant. And just keep this in mind. This was 700 years. You know, that's twice as long as our country has been in existence. Just think about that before Jesus would come. First of all, we see at the end of chapter 52, the introduction of the servant. The introduction of this suffering servant. In a nutshell, we see this servant's life described, presented, introduced. It's mysterious. It's God's plan of redemption. It's not a plan according to men. And so we see in chapter 52, verse 13, we see that this suffering servant is unique. And so Isaiah says, behold, like don't miss this. Check this out. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Behold, he is the Lord's servant. The Lord says, he's my servant. And this servant would share the throne with the most high. Think about that. Think about all the questions that they asked Jesus and they tried to indict him for. You're trying to You are a man and you're claiming to be God? How can you do this? 
Read your Bible. Jesus said, you search the scriptures for you think in them you find eternal life. These are they which testify of me and you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. It's the scriptures. What is he talking about? Right here, what we're studying this morning. Remember what the Lord said in the New Testament at the baptism of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, shh, listen to him, hear him. Peter, zip it. Remember the teachers in kindergarten? Like, zip your lips. Peter, pipe down. This is my son, hear him. The servant songs in the book of Isaiah are extremely important. Isaiah was chosen by the Lord. He was called. He was separated to the Lord's work. And then with it came, by the way, you're going to preach and no one's going to really listen to you. And Israel is pictured as my servant. And Israel would not be faithful. And they wouldn't listen. Isaiah would eventually die. And we need somebody better than Isaiah. And Israel, the people of God. And they realize, you know, when we see that they needed a savior, not much changed because of Isaiah's wonderful ministry. Isaiah 49 and verse 3, he said to me, and this is in the fourth servant song, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. His people, Israel, you're my servant. And they said, too busy. How about those gods over there? What about those gods over there? That's interesting. We could make some idols over there. Look what came out of Egypt. Hello, do you remember Egypt? The presence of the living God is in your midst and you're chasing after idols. What are you doing, Israel? I will be glorified in you. The servant operates in perfect wisdom, we see. It's wisdom from above. It's not earthly. It's not self-centered wisdom. And we looked at this last week, the wisdom of the Lord, the plan of God that he does, this servant does what is right and what is pleasing God entirely. Nothing left out, nothing fallen short. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, Paul writes, he says, for the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the gospel is folly, it's foolishness, it's stupid to those who are perishing. It's a waste of time. Do you know who I am? You know how much I have to do? Sunday is my day, I have so much to do, that's my only day. And you're telling me of this Jesus? This is foolishness, they would say. But to us, here's a contrast, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Note this, it's not talking about foolish preachers. I've heard that used by preachers. Like, I just gotta be a dumb preacher. And that, that's not what he's saying. It's saying the words coming out of a preacher's mouth are regarded to be just foolish, upside down not pleasing to the ears. And so what do we have going on right now? People, they heap up for themselves teachers that will just please my ears. Tell me how I can have my best life now. Mm -mm. That's not God's plan. 22, for Jews demand signs. They ask that of Jesus all the time. Show, show us something. We'll believe you. Show us a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. Oh, we want to learn some more. But we preach Christ crucified. 
Paul is saying a hard no. I'm not going to be a dog and pony show. I'm not going to be a circus. I'm going to tell you the most important thing. That is, Jesus Christ has all rights and all claims over your life. Have you submitted to him? That's what he's saying. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this is for everybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Praise the Lord, he is superior. We see in verse 14 of 52 that this servant of the Lord is shocking. He's shocking. Isaiah declared the horror that awaited this servant, that people would be dumbfounded, that people would be astonished. They would be in awe. They would be speechless at you. Now, this can refer to the entire role of the servant, born in Bethlehem. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? I'm, a, I'm astonished. I have no words for this. What did they say about Jesus? We know who your father and mother are. Holy Spirit conceived. Yeah, right. This is foolish to them. They mocked him. How can this be God's plan? That he would be gathering a people of Jews and Gentiles? This is shocking for Jews and Gentiles. You're in the family of God? How'd you get in here, Jesus? His body would be ravaged by extreme torture on the cross. And by this point, 700 years before Christ, the Roman, they didn't exist yet, the empire. Their crucifixion had not been invented yet. So this is another time in the Old Testament when it would be foretold, and Isaiah would say, what is this? I don't even know what this is. And Peter would say, so they would go to work and say, okay, the Spirit of God gave me this word. What exactly does this mean and when will this happen and how will this happen? And Peter says they were actually ministering for us, doing all that work. This servant would be not only shocking but successful, we see in verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Who can walk in and tell a king to shut your mouth? Try that. I'm not even going to go there with politicians and, you know, what we would like to say to politicians. Like, can you please say something true or just stop talking? How so many words can be said and nothing is communicated. It's amazing. It's absolutely stunning. Six-figure salaries to do that. He's shocking. He's successful. Kings would be silenced. They would recognize he's more honorable than me. He has more people under his rule than me. His reign is longer than mine. There's no doubt that this prophecy would come to pass. Did you see that? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings, it doesn't say kings maybe will shut their mouths because of him. They will, this will happen. Shall. They will be silenced. They will be brought low. And they which have not heard, they will understand. Now Paul quotes this, Romans 15. He quotes this because there's, a, there's something that drove Paul, the apostle. He didn't want to go simply pastor somebody else's church. 
oh, you did all the work and you got all the people? Hey, I'm the apostle. You know, I'm, 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 I'm going to coast for a while. Let me come hang out with you. I'll be your pastor. He, he said, no. This message is so important, it has to be taken to everyone. So I'm going into the hard places. I'm going into the uncut territories. Romans 15, verse 18, For I, Paul writes, will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then here he quotes Isaiah that we're studying. but as it is written. Okay, so that's the normal question. Why would you do that, Paul? What is your biblical basis for going to the unreached peoples, Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked. Isaiah said this way. Those who have never been told of him will see. Okay, so he didn't say, God is sovereign, and if he wants to get it done, then let him do it. He said, God is sovereign, and I'm going because the word sends me to go. You see how that works? When you believe God's sovereignty, it gives you all the authority and power and confidence that it doesn't rest on me. And as soon as my life is done, I'll be with Christ. So let me invest this life. And Paul says, so I'm going. I'm going to where they've never, because it's been written, those who've never been told of him, they will see and those who have never heard will understand. I'm gonna go find them. That's what Paul is saying. We see the introduction of this servant. Then we transition into chapter 53 in Isaiah and we see the rejection of this servant. Now, this is unthinkable. You would reject this servant? The servant of the Lord? The servant of God? That this servant would grow up in a common way among his people and be despised and rejected. How does that feel? Have you ever walked and you remember maybe as a kid or, or you know, any time in your life and you knew that people just despised you? All the conversation in the classroom shifted when you walked in and you still can remember that being despised and you're looking and like, that was my friend and they're, I guess, not too good of a friend. What is going on here? Okay, Jesus understands this perfectly. This plan of God in verse 1 is unbelievable. It's unthinkable. It's inconceivable. It didn't make any sense because it wasn't the plan of man. It was the plan of God who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here we see that the arm of the Lord is unstoppable. The arm of the Lord is a phrase in the Old Testament. It speaks about his salvation. All right, so you know when kids are growing up, especially little boys, and they start doing push-ups or they start doing work, good grief, man, I, I swung an ax for like my whole childhood. And every time I would come in and I would go in the mirror and I would flex my arm and I was disappointed for my entire life. <laughs> like this is not getting anywhere. My arm is nothing. This is disappointing. I go to the gym twice, three times and nothing happened. Like this is, ah, the arm of the Lord is, 
is that strong arm to save. It's, it's not, I tried, but I couldn't. It's the strong arm of the Lord. His arm isn't like my arm. He is able to save to the uttermost. And the righteous are upheld by the saving arm of the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Do you hear the contrast? Do you see the contrast there? The arms of the wicked, the mighty arms, the valiant warriors, the best of the best athletes that, are, that walk the face of the earth, their arms will be broken. Presidents, governors, mayors, everybody, CEOs, arms will be broken. Xi Jinping, Putin, on down the list. Your arm is no arm to the arm of the Lord. But what could they find in the arm of the Lord? Salvation for them. For them? Absolutely. While they're still alive. The arm of the Lord is unstoppable. John applied this prophecy of Isaiah to Jesus of Nazareth. When he explained the failure of Israelites to repent and place their faith and trust in God's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. John chapter 12, verse 35, John says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though, they had, though he had done so many signs before them, remember what we just read from Paul? The Jews seek signs. And he did miracle after miracle after miracle. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe them. Well, why not? Verse 38 so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to, whom has, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They were more afraid of man than God. Verse 43, let this sink in and let it not just be like, oh, they were such bad people. Think about Let's think about ourselves here. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we have a culture right now, and we have so many people that they are doing whatever they have to do, say whatever they have to say to be received and accepted and blessed by the culture. There's the verse. So we're not to be unkind but we are not to compromise on the word of God. We are not to compromise on what is God's plan for marriage and for human sexuality. It's not a mystery, loved ones. It's a picture of Christ's love for his church. We can't drop the ball on that. People are harmed when we do. People are hurt. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's, Jesus came to give life. 
So the writer of Hebrews, he picks up on this, Hebrews 7.25. He says and makes the application on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection. He says, consequently, he, this suffering servant, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What, what world leader can we say that about? Stalin, dead. Hitler, dead. Nebuchadnezzar, dead, been dead a long time. <laughs> Pharaoh, been dead a really long time. Oh, but not Jesus. He was dead, he was buried, and then he rose to life again. And he lives forevermore, and he has something he's doing. He's making intercession on our behalf. So in verse 2, we see the son of David appeared to be nominal, just average. Think about this. And I... Okay, I mean, we can get into it of Hollywood trying to re represent Jesus. You cannot do a better job than the word of God. And that's the danger that comes with that is when you see it on a screen and it's more believable than what you read in your Bible. That's the danger to that. So always be aware of that. The son of David was not something special. He wasn't something that people would look at and like, look at this guy. He's amazing. He's going to turn out to be something great. They looked at him and said, yeah, here's your class of elementary students in the local Jewish synagogue. Who's the standout? Mm, well, we don't really have anybody in this group. Nazareth. He, he's just average. He appeared to be. He didn't come with a superhero body. You know, he didn't come, you know, ripped and just a foot taller and, you know, could just jump everywhere and run fast. And he just, like, look at this guy. He's amazing. He, he was just Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember when they said, where'd you get all this education from? Who, what, is, what school did you go to? Where'd you get this wisdom? Who, who saw this guy coming? I'm like, he's 12 in the temple. And like, he's asking us questions. And we've all been there, right? When a 12-year-old asks you questions, you're like, go ask your mom. <laughs> Fortunately, I have all daughters, so that works pretty good most of the time. But they're saying, this, this, this kid, this kid is amazing us. And they weren't ready for it. They weren't expecting it. Look what verse 2 says. For he grows up before him like a young plant. Okay, he just didn't, boom, appear at 30. <laughs> Ministry begins. He grew up like you grew up. He experienced what you experienced and what I experienced in that setting. Like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. For sure, he wasn't the European blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus. He was an average Middle Eastern Jewish man. He experienced sorrow. He's called a man of sorrow. Look at, but look at when, when uh, Samuel went out to David's uh, anointing. The Lord says, go out to Jesse's house. Jesse brought in all his sons, 1 Samuel 16. He's like, uh, this is all your boys? Well, I got one more scrappy, scrappy guy out there in the back. Yeah, go get him. And then the Lord uses that moment to say, Samuel, don't you ever forget this. And people of God, don't ever forget this. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. All those tall, strapping young men, no, forget them. I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, where is he concerned with? 
your heart, my heart. Samuel, don't miss this. You make all these judgments on what you see on people, but God sees the heart. And when the heart is changed, then it, it flows out of the heart to everything externally. Oh, we have to learn this. The son of Mary in verse three was deemed by many as not just nominal, but despicable. Despicable. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was, in case we missed it before, despised, and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, John said. He experienced the shame of loved ones and neighbors turning away from him, denying him, disowning him, disbelieving him, betraying him. He came into our brokenness so that he might rescue us. He cares more about you and more about me than we can ever fathom. That's why we can say at the end of a service, you are loved. It's proof right here. Do you know, you know what that feels like to be rejected? Some of you have been through difficult marriages and maybe a loved one that promised I do for life and they, they left you. That's not Jesus. Long enough, if we live long enough, we will say tearful goodbyes to our loved ones. But this is Jesus and we never, and he never says goodbye to us. He will keep us for all eternity. He made you, he sees you, he knows you better than you know yourself. And listen now, that's the intimidating part, right? Because not everybody around here, your spouse doesn't even know everything about you. He does. And yet he chooses to love you. Wow. How good is he? Right? So then we see the substitution of the servant in verses four through six that his death would provide atonement for many. He's the substitute. That he entered into our suffering. And in verse four we see, yet we believed, aha, God is punishing him. That's what's happening on the cross. If you're something special, save yourself. God wouldn't leave him on the cross if he was who he said it'd be. They didn't study and apply their Bibles. They had it. 700 years they had it. He entered into our suffering. And we see this in verse four. Surely one of the sweetest verses in scripture. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They said in Matthew 27, 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Huh. Let him come down from the cross and we'll stop rejecting him. Um, does that sound like a familiar temptation? Satan, skip the cross, I'll give you the kingdoms. And Jesus said in scripture, no, no, and no again. This is the plan, suffering. Peter, hey, Jesus, can you, can you cut back on the suffering you're talking about and the cross? Come on, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, that's a strong rebuke. <laughs> Didn't mince words. 
The sinless lamb of God was crucified. In verse five, we see this. And again, remember, they didn't have the crucifixion. Isaiah didn't have the crucifixion to draw from. And by no means was the Roman Empire looking through Isaiah to find a new tactic to uh, you know, really put fear in the heart of the people and their enemies in the empire. Hey, you know, it says in Isaiah, he was pierced. Let's invent this. No, they, they were doing what they believed was their own thing, and it's all under sovereign, the sovereign hand of God. Think about that. The sinless lamb of God was crucified. He was pierced for our transgression, not his. Listen to these words here. The innocent and spotless lamb was crushed for my iniquities, for your iniquities. He was without fault. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is the substitutionary atonement that brings a sinner peace with God, that God is able to treat Jesus just as if he sinned all of my sins and your sins, so that in Christ, if I repent and trust in him, he's able to treat me as if I have completely obeyed like Jesus. That's what it is, the the substitutionary atonement as if I've always perfectly obeyed that when he looks on me, and if you're in Christ, when he looks on you, he loves you because you're in his son. That's why we believe in eternal security. That's why there are some who profess Christ and they depart from the faith. They never belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you will struggle and you will grow and you will have seasons and moments of up and down and all over. But to be in Christ, he will finish the work that he began in you. He will not give up. He will complete it. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because the sinless Savior died, the song says, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Then Isaiah says, and with his wounds we are healed. That we're forgiven of all of our sin. This is not talking about physical healing. Okay, there are some that pick up on this and, oh, in the name of Jesus, I can heal you from all your sicknesses. And, and if you don't get healed, you didn't have enough faith. No, no, no. This is dealing with the atonement. This is dealing with our sin. If anyone, believer, non-believer, ever gets well from a cold, he healed you. Okay, we don't make it to day one or day 100 without the Lord sustaining our lives. It's with his wounds, we're healed, we're forgiven. That's our greatest problem. And so the song says, wounded for me. Wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I am free, all because Jesus was wounded for me. It's coming straight out of Isaiah. That the shepherd in verse six laid down his life for the wandering sheep, and that's all of us. We were all once the wandering sheep. Some are still wandering. And he came running after us. He came seeking us. Sheep. Sheep are dumb. They're helpless to defend themselves. They step on each other. They bite each other. If it rains or dew is heavy and their wool is long, they can't get up. 
The shepherd has to come, pick them up, put them back on their feet, let all the water drip out. Okay, you're gonna, they have to lead them, feed them, protect them, take them to water, take them to grass. They have to do all of that. that, that that's sheep. We're all in need of a good shepherd. We're all in need of the great shepherd. We're all in need of the true shepherd, the chief shepherd. And David, the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that? That's not just something that is nice and comforting to hear. It's actually a personal, he says, he's my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. I won't lack any good thing. And it doesn't mean we won't suffer. David suffered. Sometimes it was his own sin. Sometimes it was God working and, and bringing about uh, development in his life that he would trust the Lord more. He was punished in the place of all who would admit their sin, trust in the Lord. Wounded. This is God's glorious plan of salvation. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God. When he saw Jesus come, comes to take away the sins of the world. We've been waiting on this one. Fourthly, we see the submission of the servant. The submission of the servant. Verses seven through nine, that the greatest one became the servant, not just of his favorites, not just of a few. He actually became the servant of all. Verse seven, he was meek and he was silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Very different than when I try to groom my dog. Not silent, not still, always trying to bite me. Okay? That's not a, I've not done any work with sheep, but that's not how sheep function. And Jesus is the shepherd who's also the lamb of God. So the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ephesians 5, 2, so Paul says, hey, Christians, this ought to register and actually revolutionize how you think about the people around you and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The king of all didn't fight. The Lord of all didn't argue. He laid down his life. Oh, but when I get wronged, well, let me tell you. He, in verse 8, was falsely accused, convicted, and condemned to death. He was put to death by his generation. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, that's killed, of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of, not him, not his transgression, the transgressions of my people. They thought they were doing God's work. They thought when they put him to death, they were doing God a favor. His enemies hated him, mocked him, scourged him, nailed him to a cross. His disciples, his family, they were confused. What is going on here? They didn't understand. They deserted him. His unjust death was precisely foretold in verse 9. 
Look at, look at how precise this is. And they made his grave with the wicked. Well, who died on either side of him? Two thieves. The one thief said, hey, you're sitting over there chewing out the man in the middle. He shouldn't be here, you and me. We should. Have you no fear of God? You're about to die and stand before God. He's preaching. Hey, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's enough. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You've trusted in the right one. And then notice he didn't say, now give me my life back. I'm yours. All yours. Lord, King, subject to you. And that's the safest place we can ever be. He died with criminals. He was buried in the borrowed tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, he just surfaces up out of, hey, Pilate, don't let his body just lay out there. He can have the tomb that I prepared for my family, that I prepared for me. I'll give it to Jesus, and it's a borrowed tomb. He, did, he didn't quite know that. All the hopes and all of their dreams and all of their aspirations and what they believed God was doing, all the disciples, all of his family, Joseph, all of them, it was put in the tomb. They weren't going to the tomb. The ladies weren't going to the tomb to see Jesus alive. They were trying to figure out how we're going to get the stone away. The disciples didn't even get there until the women got there and came back and said, hey, losers, empty tomb out there. Oh, yeah, we took him to the body. That's us. We're mighty. And No, they weren't. What? Who stole his body? Misfits filled with the Spirit changed the world. This is, this is another example of God's amazing plan. He was completely free of guilt. Judas betrayed him, went back and said, he's innocent, I've done wrong, take your money back. And they said, no, we're not taking that money back, that's blood money. Pilate's wife, Pilate, don't have anything to do with him, he's innocent. What am I supposed to do, politician? Pilate, I find no fault in him. Barabbas or Jesus? scourged him. For what? What did, what, did they, what did they find on him? Nothing. They only brought people in to lie about him. Oh, he said he was going to destroy the temple. In three days, he was going to raise it up again. He was speaking about his body. He's a terrorist. That's what he is. And they put him to death. And there's the Roman centurion. Surely this was the son of God. That's what Isaiah said. They He's completely innocent, dying for sinners. And so we don't stay there. Paul's not going to stay. We saw that image a little bit ago. He's not going to stay down. And we don't stay in the constant re-sacrificing of Christ. We don't have the mass. We don't re-sacrifice. We don't humiliate him again. Every time we meet, let's humiliate Jesus. He was humiliated, listen to me, loved ones, one time only. One time he was placed in the grave, never to go in there again. One time crucified, and he is forever and ever exalted. And all who repent and trust in him, they will live and reign with him forever and ever and ever. Now, if that doesn't give us a reason to sing and celebrate, I got nothing better. All right, nothing better. 
It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we see the exaltation in, in, the, in the close of this chapter. Verse 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Uh, when Mel Gibson made the movie, there was a great debate over, over you've placed you're going to raise up anti-Semitism again because Jews and, and Jesus and, and Mel actually used his own hand to say, actually, I did this. But actually, if you read the text, God did this. God is sovereign over this. And there weren't robots going around. How this all works out, I can't work that all for us to fathom this and just comprehend this and, and zip it nicely in our little you know, pencil pack and we've got this all figured out. We, here we go. This is God's plan. My question is, am I submitted to God's plan? Have I surrendered to God's plan? Because the scripture is very clear. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What do we know about this? Verse 10, God was sovereign over the cross. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan that went bad, went south, fell apart. Absolutely not. It was the will of God. It was the plan of God to crush, to break Christ in our place. Jesus had to be God to settle the debt. And he had to be human to be put to death. So we absolutely believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Genesis 3.15, here was the promise of a coming Messiah third chapter of the entire Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a look like of defeat. It's going to appear that you have won Satan, but you have just bruised his heel. Crucifixion. He'll crush your head. Resurrection. And everyone who trusts in him, we will live. 1 Corinthians 15, amazing, amazing passage. The offering of Jesus' life opened up heaven for all who would believe. It talks about his offspring. So here we're right back at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, here we are, the children of God, the offspring might become the righteousness of God. Resurrection is the evidence that he shall prolong his days. When you read that and you say, 33 years old, that's pretty young to die prolong his days? That's because the grave wasn't the end of the story. Right. He's still living and reigning, and a million years, a billion years, when years stop even mattering, he'll still be reigning. That's pretty much prolonged, yeah. okay? So he comes true. Resurrection is the evidence of this. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And when he laid down his life, what did he say? It is finished, paid in full. The, the demand of the righteous father satisfied for all who would trust in him. Paid in full. Verse 11, Jesus was victorious on the cross. He laid down his life. He suffered immensely in our place. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This wasn't the, Jesus didn't go through this and just not suffer because I'm a superhero, I don't suffer. You see the movies and they get hit and they get punched and they get run over by mountains and they're still okay, you know. Jesus suffered like we suffer. 
He suffered in his soul. He suffered in his body. He didn't employ supernatural powers and it didn't bother him. He, it was anguish, deep agony. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood to be separated from his father for you and for me. This is love. He shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, notice, not all. Universalism, no way. You must repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood is sufficient for the entire world, but it must be applied to you. You must receive the gift of salvation and many will be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities, those who trust in him. So we see that Jesus lives, he reigns and he intercedes on our behalf. Verse 12, he will never be humiliated again. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion uh, with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is victorious here because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, not all, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's me, that's you. We've broken God's law. We talked about that this morning. That God has exalted Jesus as the victor over sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. He is the victorious one. And what did he win? a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation that will gather in the presence of the lamb who still bears those marks in his body of crucifixion. He so identifies with us, he didn't depart from those scars. Those scars speak of his love. And we will worship the lamb and cry out, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Slain for sinners like you and like me. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. He's the only way. But God made a way for sinners. So the writer of Hebrews says, come on, let's go. Do you realize what he's done for you? Do you realize you're no hopers? You got no chance. You have no shot. There's nobody headhunting you to get you on this team, except there is one, Jesus. And he made a way for you. You can't get there on your own, but he came so that you can get there. And this is what he says in Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. All right, shore up the boundaries here. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come on, let's go. That's what he's saying. Come on, don't stay outside. Don't choose to stay outside. Trust in Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. The introduction, he's introduced, it's the Lamb of God. He was rejected because of us, by his own people. He was substituted for me, for my sin. He submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. 
It's Jesus. So loved ones, what is your next step to rightly respond to this humiliated and exalted servant of God? Jesus. Don't wait until tomorrow because you're not guaranteed tomorrow and neither am I. Today. What is your step of obedience and surrender to the one, the only one who's worthy? Take that step today. Confess, repent of that sin today. Trust in Jesus today. He's waiting for you. He loves you. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives, our love, because you're gracious, you're good, you're sovereign. And you sent Jesus. And Jesus, you came humbly. And you suffered in our place so that we could be forgiven, redeemed, adopted. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for your body being broken for sinners like me so that I can stand here and freely and we can go wherever we go today and this week and let people know salvation is available for you, but you must repent and you must trust in Christ alone and he will forgive you and the strong arm of the Lord will deliver you. He will save you. Thank you for your salvation. We praise your name. Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.